0: Uh, My name is John Shouse. I'm a fellow in the International Security Program here at CSIS and with Dr. Hicks and others, uh, a co-author on the report. Uh, For the second part of our discussion this morning, uh, we will have a panel conversation. Joining me are Dr. Amy Seawright, the Director for Southeast Asia here at CSIS, Jonathan Geithner, the Director of uh, Marine Corps Programs at the Center for Naval Analysis, and uh, Lieutenant General George Flynn, retired, Uh, A man who nearly needs no introduction, but uh, I will get to that as well as introducing more thoroughly my other two panelists in a moment. Uh, Before I (coughs) introduce them and and we get into the meat of the discussion, I thought it would be helpful to provide just a couple minutes of of context and grounding on what our report actually says. Um, We heard great material from uh, General Whistler almost obviating the need for us to publish the report without having read it he basically gave us the outlines by himself uh... but very quickly i just wanted to go through a couple of of highlights from the report Um, so this this was a study that took twelve months we reached out very widely both across the united states marine corps into the navy and with allies and partners to get a better understanding (coughs) of what kind of investments were occurring in the Asia-Pacific, how activities were evolving between the United States and partners, and how that was changing the thinking within the United States of how to use an amphibious force. Um, Ultimately, uh, we didn't find a single silver bullet that would help us fix this problem of uh, doing more with less, or as General Whistler described it, doing differently with less. Um, In many ways, that's depressing. We're the think tank. We're supposed to come up with great ideas. On the other hand, it's a physics problem, as General Whistler also said. There's, there's only so much you can do when you have fewer resources. But what we did note is a number of emerging trends in amphibious capabilities in the region. First, uh, Japan, Australia, South Korea are, are redoubling their efforts to develop and maintain a robust, military amphibious capability for a range of operations other countries in the region are also investing as we heard general whistler talk about singapore the philippines and we went out as far as india looking at how india is also expanding its amphibious capabilities taken as a whole these uh, greater investments are driving more demand for engagement with the us navy marine corps team and as the the us amphibious force is under uh, financial and operational stress managing that uh, growing demand is becoming more complicated. Um, Over time, it's also complicated by the fact that the amphibious fleet has approximately 50 percent as many hulls today as it did in 1990. We're down at around 34 ships in the programmed force, down from about 67 in 1990-1991. However, as bad as that sounds, each ship is significantly more capable and is approximately twice as large as they were 25 years ago. So there's, there's a capability capacity trade that's been made throughout the last 25 years. Uh, that is impacting how often the Marine Corps and the Navy can be out and about partnering. But on the whole, I think that the decision has been made that that gives us the right mix as a country to achieve the missions that we're trying to, to cover. So that brings us to the, the recommendations that our report highlighted, and there were seven. So I'm going to go through these hopefully briefly. First, uh, increase U.S. Pacific Command's operation and maintenance budget to allow greater, a greater number of steaming days for non-traditional or alternative platforms. This is particularly important because many of our E-class vessels are commercial derivatives, which are designed to steam many more months a year than a typical military vessel. So without the steaming days and without the budget to pay for those steaming days, as General Whistler mentioned again, uh, we don't get the full value for what we've invested in. Second, building off the first, we recommend developing and implement or establishing a special purpose MagTAF for the Western Pacific, a Marine Air Ground Task Force the western Pacific to self-deploy, to marry up with these uh, E-class, these expeditionary class vessels, so that the, the Marines who are deploying with the vessels are more flexible and more available at the same time that the ships themselves become more available. Third, conduct a pilot program to identify what opportunities and challenges exist to integrate the Army's existing uh, naval, Meri- or, uh, naval logistics force and the LSV fleet that it operates to integrate with the existing amphibious force. Fourth, develop a low-cost modular command and control mechanism that can be deployed to any L-class amphibious vessel to amplify that critical need of command and control that the United States is able to provide for allied operations or partner operations. Fifth, uh, consider or explore the possibility of developing, maybe co-producing, a commercial derivative ship that achieves most of the needs that are required but at a significant cost savings to the, to the full-up warship, as, as General Whistler mentioned. Um, sixth, change the home porting of at least two maritime prepositioned force, excuse me, v- vessels from Guam to forward into Southeast Asia. These are non-threatening, non-warships that provide significant capabilities, especially for humanitarian uh, assistance and disaster relief efforts and would allow uh, a significant savings in what we call the transit tax. The Pacific's a big place. Going from A to B takes generally a couple weeks. So if you can save that week or two both ways, that gives you a lot more time on station, a lot more presence days. And then finally, we urge the Navy and Marine Corps to partner on an analysis of alternative amphibious forces uh, that would enhance force adaptability while preserving warfighting capabilities. This is probably the hardest thing to do because it requires thinking about what the Marine Corps and what the Navy do differently uh, without significantly sacrificing warfighting capabilities. And so to explore are there different ways to configure, to composite, to operate that would allow a equally capable force, greater adaptability and flexibility. So with that as a slightly long brief summary of our report, uh, I'll introduce my my panelists here and I'll start at the end with uh, General Flynn who uh, served for 38 years in the United States Marine Corps, uh, served in numerous positions. I'll highlight just a couple. On the joint staff uh, he created the Joint Force Development Directorate overseeing I believe 2,000 people and a budget of about a billion dollars. He served as the deputy commandant of the Marine Corps for uh, combat development and integration, identifying future training, equipping, personnel, requirements uh, for the entire Marine Corps. He was the deputy commanding general of the multinational corps Iraq uh, and currently serves as a regent at the Hudson Institute, a non-resident affiliate here at CSIS. And in interest of full transparency, I would also note that he is uh, a consultant to Huntington Ingalls Industries, who is a sponsor of this report. He's here, however, we didn't find that out until after we invited him based on his experience. He's here as a a non-resident affiliate of CSIS. Uh, In the middle here, uh, Jonathan Geithner is the Vice President and Director of Marine Corps Programs at the Center for Naval Analysis. Uh, His research there focuses on addressing operations, manpower, training, logistics, programs and resources, aviation, and naval integrations issues for the United States Marine Corps. Basically, he is the go-to person on all uh, issues of analysis for the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. Uh, In addition to a depth of analytic background and research background, he has served in the field five times. Um, I couldn't quite understand how it all broke down, but both with 1MEF, 3MEF, with Marine Forces Pacific, uh, Marine Forces Central Command, with Marine Forces uh, Reserve, and Commander Multinational Force West in Anbar Province in Iraq. And then to my immediate right, Dr. Amy Seawright is the recently joined uh, Director for Southeast Asia here at CSIS. Uh, Prior to joining CSIS, the beginning of this month? Yes. Yes, this month, she was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for South and Southeast Asia within the Office of the Secretary of Defense at the Pentagon. Prior to that, she served as the Principal Director for East Asia in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, and before that as Senior Advisor for Asia at the U.S. Agency for International Development. So a a wealth of of experience at the policy level across uh, both development and defense within the government. Additionally, she's held uh, positions at the Elliott School of International Studies at Georgetown, or at, I'm sorry, at George Washington University, and also at positions at Harvard and Northwestern. So uh, with that as a, an extremely accomplished panel, I will turn to, uh, I think, General Flynn for opening remarks, and then we'll move this way.
1: Okay, good morning, everyone. Um, after, you know, in and Marine Corps 38 years, I've been at the highlight or the high end of amphibious fleet when we had about 60 amphibs, and I also uh, watched the transition when we went down to about 30 that were operating. So. One of the things about being around a long time you get to see a lot of change and you get a lot of, to adapt to it uh, the hard part about being here is general whistler like john said did a great job in, in highlighting the studies. so i agree with everything general whistler said he did a great job and i could end right here but i i think i'm supposed to do a little bit more today i want to thank dr hicks uh, for inviting me here today it's a privilege to be here and i hope i can add a little bit to the discussion Uh, This morning, I was asked to speak to the benefits or drawbacks of having forward-deployed amphibious forces and to also give you my sense of how amphibious force activities with allies and partners impact the development of their amphibious capabilities. As a Marine and a believer in all things amphibious, I can clearly state that there are are only benefits of having forward-deployed amphibious forces, and I can think of no drawbacks. I also believe that it is in our security interest to help our allies and partners develop these capabilities as well. I hope this is what you thought I would be saying this morning. The opening line of the study really speaks to why our nation and other nations need forward-deployed amphibious forces. The flexibility, scalability, and responsiveness make them ideal operating bases for the security environment we find ourselves in today. As a maritime nation, the United States relies on naval forces to be forward deployed in order to engage with our partners and allies to shape the security environment, respond to crisis, and to protect our citizens and interests around the globe. Without a doubt, forward presence is posture for naval forces. Naval forces have the ability to use the seas as maneuver space. The freedom of action that this allows is the strategic advantage for the United States that has served us well for the past two centuries. Key to enabling this advantage is recognizing that the key capabilities needed for naval maneuver are the ability to establish sea control and the ability to project power from the sea. These two things ensure that we can protect and advance our national interests around the globe, and they are what make our naval forces, to include amphibious forces, relevant across the full range of military operations. The recently published Cooperative Strategies 21 stated that there is a linkage between sea control and power projection. In the case of amphibious forces, this means that they have a role not just in projecting power from the sea, but also in enabling sea control operations. Today, this role is not as well understood as I believe it needs to be. And I firmly believe that the employment of amphibious forces in sea control operations will be both a tactical and operational advantage as we deal with the security challenges that are ahead. Based on the above relevancy and utility of amphibious forces, it is no surprise that many other countries are beginning to to develop similar amphibious capabilities. The report, I believe, mentions uh, six countries, Japan, Australia, the Republic of Singapore, Philippines, and South South Korea and India. And I believe this speaks volumes about the need for and the utility of amphibious capability as well as the requirement to engage with our security partners to help them develop their capabilities. Amphibious warships that are both capable and survivable are their foundation of, of a credible amphibious capability. Using these ships as operating bases, all of the six warfighting functions can be performed from the sea, which allows for and supports the successful execution of the five naval functions listed in Cooperative Strategy 21 all domain access, deterrence, sea control, power projection, and maritime security. For the aforementioned countries, the development of the capability to operate from a sea base and creating the ability to perform warfighting functions across the range of military operations will take time. Initial success and lessons learned to build on will likely be found initially in security cooperation in humanitarian assistance operations and exercises. Much more work will be needed to develop the capabilities to operate across the full range of military operations. In developing both the capability and capacity needed for the successful execution of amphibious operations across RELMO the keys to success will be recognizing that amphibious capabilities result not only of ships but also the capabilities that are embarked, the Marines and sailors, the embarked aerial and surface maneuver platform connectors, the bandwidth for intel, the ability to, to provide fires as well as the ability to coordinate fires, the ability to provide the full range of logistics, and obviously the need to provide a float command and control. In looking to assist others in the development of amphibious capability, the report and its assessment of the various states of development makes it clear that development of amphibious capability is a complex task and will be an evolutionary process. It is much more than moving people and equipment across the beach. It is about knowing how to develop embarkation plans, the ability to operate in various sea states, the ability to cycle your flight deck, the ability to execute the full range of warfighting functions afloat to enable and sustain operations ashore. This process begins with each country deciding what capabilities are needed for their security interest. Once this is decided, the platforms and embark capabilities can be created and the training and exercises designed and executed to make the desired capability a reality. If these nations desire, the U.S. can be a partner in capability development by offering to share lessons learned from decades of experience by the exchange of liaison officers as well as the execution of combined operations and exercises to help in the evolution of partner nation amphibious capabilities. The demand for amphibious capabilities is evidenced by the COCOM request and the reality of split and disaggregated operations by our currently deployed amphibious ready groups and Marine Expeditionary Unit uh, underscores both the need for the capability as well as the need to take action to mitigate capacity challenges. Working with our friends and allies to help them develop their own capabilities has the potential to mitigate a a portion of these shortfalls. Lastly, I think this report highlights the utility of the amphibious capability and, more importantly, the capacity shortfalls that exist today, as well as the challenges and opportunities in the development of partner nation capabilities. I look forward to your questions.
0: Thank you, General. Jonathan?
2: I thought I spoke quickly. Um, General Flynn, you've... you've You've reached a new level for me. I'll try to slow it down a bit. Um, thanks to John, um, to Amy, CSIS, um, and General Flynn, and others for the opportunity to speak today. Um, it's a, an important piece of work that CSIS has recently published, or will soon be, be, be publishing. Um, and I think it will, it, it will very much um, contribute to the important dialogue that exists regarding the importance of allied and partner nation and amphibious capability both in the Asia Pacific and across the globe. I was asked by John um, to to comment on how demand for amphibious forces might change over the next 15 to 20 years, and how that demand might be addressed through investments by allied and partner nations in amphibious capabilities. There'll be many factors that drive such demand, but to start it might help to consider that the current fleet of U.S. amphibious warships will remain relatively constant through 2045, with some important improvement in capabilities in individual ship classes. This is largely due to budget limitations and investment priorities. Marine Corps, meanwhile, will find itself increasingly distributed, from a posture largely concentrated in Northeast Asia to one that will involve Marines in multiple locations throughout the region. This is both for political and other reasons. Either way, the new posture will present a vast array of challenges to ensure continued operational relevance and force readiness. A third factor, of course, is the great maritime space that defines not just the Western Pacific, but also the Indian Ocean. Where our historical presence derives from the amount of time carrier strike groups and amphibious ready groups and marine expeditionary units spend transiting to and from the West Coast and the North Arabian Gulf. There are just a few drivers of future demand for amphibious forces um, and ships in general that I think are, are important to take note of, and I, I believe will increase um, the utility of these vessels and ultimately their use in the region. Not everyone agrees that touch factors support a different way of thinking about this region and amphibious forces in general. Those who don't invoke two arguments. The first involve questions over the relevance of amphibious warfare in a major conflict against a sophisticated adversary. The second is the relative stability of the region. Both arguments are questionable in my view. The first one makes unfair assumptions about how the security dynamics in the broader region will evolve or would actually be shaped by naval forces in circumstances short of overt conflict. This implies an opportunity to not only revisit the allocation of amphibious fleet, but to include four locations in that dialogue. And also how our partner and and allied amphibious capabilities can serve both national as well as shared interests. As for the second argument, it's not a question of crisis levels. If it were, we'd put all our forces somewhere else, in the Middle East, in the Southern Mediterranean, and in North Africa. Rather, it's how we might want to manage emerging tensions over such issues as sovereignty and other disputes. I think the historical record on crisis response makes it clear that amphibious warships provide a great deal of flexibility in shaping security perspectives, both relative to other naval capabilities and in an absolute sense. Thought of in this way, fostering great amphibious integration and interoperability with our allies and partners in the a- Asia Pacific, as we're doing right now with a company of Marines based on the HMAS Adelaide um, as part of the MRF D force in Australia, or in Europe through a recent concept known as the Am- Amphibious Maritime Basing Initiative, or AMBI. I think General Whistler um, talked about that as well. Strikes me as a natural step in improving our collective amphibious capacity with or without constraints on budgets. Thank
0: you. Amy, please.
3: Uh, Thanks, John. Um, Kath and John asked me to speak from a broad policy perspective about how we view um, amphibious capabilities, forward deployment of of amphibious forces, um, from a policy perspective. So where I sat in the Pentagon for Uh, two years focusing specifically on South and Southeast Asia, you know, we were really focused on how do we implement the rebalance. You know, the rebalance is fundamentally about increasing our investment in time, uh, energy, focus, and resources. And in terms of investing time, really critically is investing our leaders' time from the President to the Secretary of Defense and other cabinet uh, ministers on down and having them really engage on the issues, engage with counterparts and showing up to the region. Showing up in Asia, as I think many of you know, is so important. So, how do we kind of think about the rebalance? You know, fundamentally, it was about kind of making this investment, which we were doing and it was showing, it was really paying off in concrete ways. In ways, I'll give you a few examples in a minute. Um, but in ways that really did help to shape the regional security environment in the interests of the United States and our allies and partners. And ultimately, this was all to the goal of having strong and capable allies and partners in the region, and at this point in time, when you look at the Asia Pacific, virtually everyone is our ally or partner, and we're growing deeper and deeper relationships with them. But increasing their capabilities and their wherewithal so that they can make their own strategic choices free of any kind of intimidation or coercion. And why do we care about their ability to do this? Because we think and we've seen over 70 years that when they are free to make choices, they are, in general, they're going to make choices that are going to maintain and uphold and support the rules-based order that has been so critically important to the success of the Asia Pacific in particular. So they're going to support common rules and norms and on the whole peaceful resolution of disputes and those sorts of things. So our presence in the region is really critical. At the same time, even though we've built these relationships, we see growing uh, challenges, security, direct challenges to the regional security environment, Uh, most notably the rise of an assertive China with growing capabilities and maritime ambitions, Uh, a North Korea that is growing uh, uh, more and more dangerous, a resurgent Russia which is uh, reclaiming its ambitions in the Asia Pacific in many ways, and of course a range of non-traditional security threats from uh, the growing frequency of large-scale natural disasters, which is only going to grow more with climate change over time. So humanitarian assistance and disaster relief responses are critically important. Um, Terrorism is a continuing and perhaps growing threat in the region piracy as well. So our ability to work with partners to tackle all of these challenges becomes really important to maintain our presence, our commitments to the region and as I said, uphold this really important rules-based order. Um, so where does forward deployed amphibious forces fit into this? Uh, well, we have more and more on a rotational basis in particular through access agreements with partners. Um, we are increasingly relying on Uh, these kinds of forward deployed rotational forces in the region to maintain our presence um, and strengthen our posture in the region. This allows us not only to project power, uh, but also build the capabilities of our partners, um, provide reassurance to key partners uh, and deterrence to our adversaries, and provide a rapid response, a really timely response to crises in the region Uh, or uh, provide presence, uh, increased presence, when tensions are rising. So here again, showing up really matters. When there's a crisis in the region, whether it's a large-scale natural disaster or uh, search and rescue operation or anything else, our ability uh, to have U.S. forces show up quickly uh, and be helpful really matters. And our ability to be in the region on a regular basis, training and engaging, exercising with counterparts really matters. So let me just give you a few examples that sort of happened under my watch um, that demonstrate how important uh, these forces are. You know, first, when there's a crisis, uh, a natural disaster like Typhoon Haiyan, um, or the Nepal earthquake, uh, the United States was able to show up quickly and make a huge difference on the ground. In the case of Typhoon Haiyan, not only did we help uh, our ally, the Philippines, helped their people, but that was that created a sort of mutual, uh, a, a sort of a a, a, a positive impact in terms of our ability to pass our Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, EDCA, and get it through the Supreme Court review because it created so much goodwill on the ground. The the value of the alliance and the value of having U.S. presence in the Philippines was greatly understood. And the Nepal earthquake, it's it's really important to note that we worked on the ground well with Indian counterparts. Um, These these crises often bring us together with other responders as well as uh, the victims on the ground in really beneficial ways. Um, In the Philippines, again, our our recent exercise of Bali-Katan is an example of a large exercise this year and last year we had Australia participants. We hope to have Japan participating in the future incredibly important to help exercise together, build up the capabilities of our ally, the Philippines, um, and also allowed us, uh, based on this exercise and our forces that were present there, when we went to the Philippines in April uh, with Secretary Carter went, he was able to announce that we were going to leave behind some aircraft and personnel um, as a sort of deterrence measure against growing concern about Chinese activities in the region. We also left behind a few dozen Marines to set up a command and control center to help uh, uh, to to have joint planning and operations for a number of air exercise, air operations, and, and naval operations. So that was uh, very beneficial as well. And of course, going into the future, now that we have the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, the EDCA. Um, is upheld by this Supreme Court review, uh, so we are going forward and implementing it, and we'll be able to look at rotational presence um, of Marines and other forces, including in, cr- in strategically critical places like Palawan. In Australia, uh, several have already mentioned uh, our MRF D presence there, uh, nearly 1,200 Marines that have been rotating um, through Darwin, creating opportunities to train with our Australian a- uh, allies, um, continuing. To- to maintain the interoperability that we've built up um, in, in recent decades and also creates great opportunities in the region to engage with other partners um, and, and to be in the region should a contingency or crisis occur. Um, Malaysia, we've had our second annual uh, new amphibious exercise with Malaysia, the Malis Amphex, and Malaysia is so enthralled with our Marines. Um, based on the very positive interactions and engagements they've had, that they have offered access to their training range at Kota Balud, um, and you know we're, we've been talking with them about having a you know having that kind of access continue in the future. I'm very optimistic. Um, Singapore has been mentioned. Uh, of course, we have a naval presence there through our littoral combat ships, which will go up to. Four simultaneously based there uh, in 2018. That provides us a whole range of capabilities in in especially non-traditional security threats like counter piracy and search and rescue and HADR. But it's a great platform to engage with other partners in the region as well. Um, And we have a new agreement to have rotational P-8 flights. Uh, in and out of Singapore, which also contribute to all of those missions. So these are just some examples. There are so many more in Indonesia and many other countries in the region where we have more access, more engagement. And it really is a sort of um, mutually reinforcing cycle um, that, that the more we engage with partners, um, the more they see the value in what we bring to the table, the more they, they want to engage with us more. And so it sort of starts on the ground with the Marines deployed there and the various training activities and exercises that we engage in. And it floats up to the policy level, where we then can have discussions about how we can work together in a variety of ways um, to make the region more uh, you know, co- uh, conducive to all of our shared interests. I'll
0: stop there. Thank you. Thanks to each of you. Those were a great uh, cross-section of comments. And uh, as I was listening to General Whistler, I kept striking through questions I was going to ask of the panel, and as I'm listening to you, I'm striking through nearly all of the rest, so I've got to think on my feet a little here. One question to throw, I think, to, to anyone who's, who's willing to, to take this on is, the region is investing in amphibious capabilities, and Japan, Australia, Korea have a very clearly stated uh, military defense mission for their forces. Other countries, Singapore, the Philippines, are, 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 are they're not as forward leaning. They're they're much more uh, ensconced in how they describe their capability as a crisis response or HADR focused um, capability. As as we kind of see these hands play out in the region, do you see the? The way the Marine Corps engages with them, or how much the Marine Corps and Navy team need to engage with them, uh, shifting, and how do we how do we do different with less in an effective way? To to paraphrase General Whistler.
1: Okay, I'll take Let's it. Go right to left. Yeah, we'll go right to <laughs> left. So, I knew that was going to happen. Uh, I, I think one of the key parts as as our our partners and friends and allies develop their capabilities. Uh, I think one of the things that we always have to be conscious of is they have to be able to do it their way, and we have to be able to offer our assistance in whatever way we can that they develop it their way. So if, if they want liaison officers, if they want to take part in exercises, we got to be open to their request. But the reality is, you know, their capabilities are going to reflect their national interests. And, and, and we don't necessarily need to create um, more of us. What we need to be able to do is, is, to, is to be able to create a collective capability that is a reflection of everybody, everybody's contribution their way in, in uh, relation to how they see their national interest.
2: I would agree with General Flynn. I think one of the virtues of the amphibious force, whether it's an ARG or the components thereof, or a special purpose MAGTAF, or a company of Marines, or, or a platoon of Marines, as is the case on, on some non traditional vessels, is our ability to tailor what we bring to the needs of individual countries um, that, that specifically meets their needs. And as to the point about doing different with less, I think what General Whistler had mentioned, as well as General Flynn, regarding the use of many different types of vessels, not just traditional FUS warships, also amounts to our ability to um, augment uh, the, the growing force, as General Whistler mentioned, uh, hopefully with the 10th ARG um, regarding overall
0: capacity in the region. Okay. Um, one, one related follow up to this 10th ARG idea, which may be first fielded by you, Amy, is working with partners. Uh, particularly for posture, mm-hmm. is often a long lead time kind of activity. We have to figure out what exactly we're asking for, work with the partner to determine what they're willing to bear and negotiate the specifics. Can you talk to, at a, at a strategic level, how how much effort do you think the United States should be putting in that basket of trying to get more posture versus this rotational concept versus you know, just regular exercises. If you were kind of parsing through that.
3: You mean uh, building up their own capabilities or working with them to have, rotate, to have access agreements? The access agreements, okay. yes. Um, look, I, I think we, we have been putting a lot of effort in, in, that, uh, in that area, both because it's been clear that we have some relatively open doors. I mean, that if we push on some doors, they're gonna open for us. Um, so engaging with them, talking about, t- engaging with some key partners, many of which I've mentioned already, um, and talking about where our needs overlap, um, I think really you know starts to highlight some real opportunities, especially as there are growing concerns, anxieties, threats in the region that I, that I also already mentioned. Um, so I think it has been a big uh, uh, focus area, and going forward, it, I think the value of having Rotational presence is going to become more and more clear and will, I think, make the case even stronger. And I think there might be a a positive feedback kind of effect where, you know, as we make it, as we demonstrate through our deployments, our rotational deployments, that we are not looking to set up bases, we are just looking to have rotational places where our forces will rotate through and engage in some really productive activities. I think that's going to make the case to many other partners of the value of having those kinds of arrangements. So I would actually see this as, a, as an increasingly important uh, part of our overall security strategy in the region. Thanks.
0: A, a, a different angle on this 10th ARG concept and, and the uh, ongoing Washington debate of how big should the Amphib fleet be. There's you know, the, the currently stated policy of 34 ships while accepting risk. With a target of thirty-eight ships, um, General Flynn, Jonathan, can you help us understand, or how, how you would suggest we think through determining what the right number of ships is? Or okay. is that is that a third rail that we shouldn't
1: should no, touch it, on? It, It's not a third rail. So, you know, I haven't haven't been the former requirements guy for the Marine Corps and being around when we agreed that the requirement was for 38 amphibs and that we were going to be fiscally constrained to 34 the basis of that requirement was that uh, the Marine Corps and the Navy agreed that the minimum amount of capability that a maritime nation needed was the ability to be able to uh, embark two marine expeditionary brigades so that was that's the basis of the 38 ship requirement was the requirement for two amphibious brigades or two expeditionary brigades You heard in General Whistler's remarks today, he talks about the COCOM requests that come in. I I hesitate to use the word demand. It's the COCOM requests come in and and those get adjudicated by the the joint uh, staff. So everybody would like more of the capability out there. You know, the number has been as high as I think 50 uh, some odd vessels in that, but everybody can't have everything they want. You have to be able to set priorities. So the question is, do you build your force for presence, for humanitarian assistance, or do you build your force to have relevancy across the range of military operations? My personal opinion is I tend to go, you want utility across the range of military operations. But I'm also aware that in the physical environment we live in, I used to say you can have anything you want, just ask for it, but you can't have everything. So sooner or later, you have to figure out where your priorities are, and you have to draw your line. So uh, I think the the right level of ships, you know, you need a mixture of what do you need to engage around the world to build the partnerships that you need to deal with the challenges of the security environment. And then what do you need if you you have to be able to conduct operations across the full range of military operations? The one thing I did say in my remarks that I think is important, is you know we do have to, sometimes in the Marine Corps, we tended to think that the Navy did sea control and we came in and did power projection. I think one of the new ideas we need to take a look at is what is the role of amphibious forces in enabling sea control? And that the Marine Corps should come to the table and say, this is how we can help you Navy in sea control operations, much like we did in the 1980s in the execution of the maritime strategy that we had back then.
2: I would agree. I think um, I'm sort of a realist. The the level of the amphibious fleet um, now and and through the the Navy's 30-year build plan is what it is. And we can argue that 38 ships is the right number. We can argue that 34 is the one we're settling on for for matters of risk or minimizing risk. We can argue that the 38 are based on um, the assault echelon of two marine expeditionary brigades or something else. The the truth of the matter is we'll, we'll live with the inventory we have. And I think, in that regard, um, these kinds of dialogues are essential to creating the, the necessary creativity in, in maximizing what you can do with those, 30, those 34 ships, um, and that will ebb and flow over the years. Um, and the key to that is, is where you put those ships. Um, for, for many, many years, decades, in fact, they've been roughly equally apportioned between the East and the West Coast and I think as was mentioned earlier, the question now in front of the Navy is, does that represent the right balance of where we want these, these available ships? And I, I believe personally, and I think the data bear this out, that um, <coughs> a, a slight reapportionment of those assets um, towards the West creates a larger base of amphibious ships to choose from um, in, in, in concert with the other vessels that the Marine Corps has been experimenting with with the Navy um, is, is the right way to think about this.
0: Thank you. So. With that, I think I'll turn it open to the audience for questions. Sydney. And please uh, state your name and affiliation and end your statement with a question mark.
4: Uh, to pull a thread that a couple of you have touched on, especially General Flynn, uh, in the context of anti-access, area denial especially, there's a lot of focus on what in many ways, is a very old Marine Corps and Naval Entry role of project of aiding in sea control, you know, which once upon a time meant you know seizing forts and intermediate bases, you know, coaling stations. Uh, how does that translate into the modern area? I think uh, General Whistler mentioned you know the HIMARS deploying HIMARS as part of Marine Force in one experiment that was looking at this. Uh, what are the things the Marines can do with their current uh, hardware and just by you know exploring new concepts and what if you had more money Which is always a question could you do in addition to make the Marines more
1: of a sea control force? Uh, okay, so a, a couple ideas off the You know and I always look back at history so when you take a look at contributions to sea control if you take a look at operations in World War II when the Marines seized Guadalcanal, the, the idea was to take the airfield. And the, why you wanted the airfield is you wanted to be able to, to launch aircraft so that they can do sea control. So it was extending that, that area of sea space that you could do sea control. During the maritime strategy, you know, and, and being able to seize the initiative and fight forward, you know, we, put, we were going to put Marines in Iceland. We were going to secure the airfield there. We were going to protect it with Hawk missiles. So that we could operate P three aircraft out of there to help control the GIUK gap. And then we would we would then go up to the flank and we would secure the forge so that the carriers could could do strike operations out of there. Again, expanding the being able to contribute to expanding the reach of the Navy to be able to do that. I think you hit on something here. You know, we, we live in, I don't want to say a fiscally constrained environment. We live in a fiscally a fiscal environment, we have to make choices, so you're gonna to have to think your way out of the problem. So how you use these platforms. You know, we have, we, uh, the Marine Corps has fifth generation aircraft, you know, where I think we're gonna stand up the second F-35 squadron here shortly. So what, how, what do you do with a big deck amphib with fifth generation aircraft? It's gonna ta- complicate somebody's targeting and it's also gonna increase your ability to complicate or to use uh, maneuver space. Uh, putting high Mars uh, on a land base. I mean you can you can control uh, You can control certain parts of the seas that way uh, You can you can episodically take an airfield or or take a, You know a, an operating base somewhere operate out of it temporarily and then leave so Thinking of all these things uh, I think look back at history look at how we were successful in the past and understand that um you know, using using the forces in an innovative and adaptive way is really going to be the key to outthinking an A two A D environment. It's not all about uh, you know, flying you know, flying or sailing in the harm's way. It's about outthinking and also take a look at some of the new thinking that's going on. We we in General Neller's thinking as he's been talking, he talks about being able to operate in all five domains. Five domains, operating in five domains is complicated, but there's tremendous opportunity if you can integrate operations across five domains. And, and that will help enable these new concepts to come to being.
2: I looked at General Flynn because we talked about this before the session started and, and I'm grateful that uh, he's given this some thought. Um, I think he's right on that, that the, we need to stop thinking about the Marine delivering, sorry, the Navy is delivering Marines to forward locations that are largely land-based. Um, There are many examples where um, Marines and Marten amphibious ships, warships or otherwise, have contributed to the Navy's attempts to exert sea control, uh, most recently in the Red Sea during the absence of the carrier in the North Arabian Gulf. Um, 26MU just deployed with the RQ-21, which is a long range UAS vehicle, which is a wonderful element um, of of the Marine Corps' capability to um, provide added sensors at greater distance. and could aid in the, in the sea control mission. Uh, and finally, and I think the Marine Corps' ability to operate in very small um, formations in many different locations uh, along the littorals, with or without HIMARS, give you the unique ability to, to influence um, the sea lines of communication and generally ship traffic wh- wherever that might be.
4: George Nicholson with the uh, Global Special Operations Forces Foundation. One of the things that General Whistler sort of alluded to is the enabling capabilities of using the V-22s. He talked about refueling, and one of the questions he was also asked about was, you know, how can you enhance the capability of the the F-35? What was not brought up right now is some of the innovative things the Marines are doing right now is modifying their MV-22s to pass gas, so you're going to have the ARG out there that can now act as a bingo refueling platform to support the F-35Bs to extend extend the range of other platforms. The other thing that General Davis, the Deputy Commandant for Aviation, has done is now the the actual refueling of Marine Corps MV-22s off of KC-10s, and also um, one of the highest priorities is in the requirements for the KC-46 of doing the same thing, giving that huge and enabling force projection capability AFSOC is not even doing that and the last thing is in terms of enabling capabilities He didn't allude to it, but he talked about the Australians and what happened in East Timor Didn't allude to the Australians two new huge amphib platforms uh, the Canberra and the and the Adelaide and I understand their deck is strengthened that it'll be able to support the v 22 Are these countries other countries that are developing an amphib capability is are, are being looked at and saying is it an enabling capability for you as you build these ships, give it the capability so that it can support Marine Corps V-22s or support a Marine Corps 53 kilos?
2: I'm happy to at least take the baton on this one for for, for a start. I think um, we see a lot of evidence. Um, I'm most familiar with, with um, the European theater at this point, where uh, whether it's the Spanish or the Italians or the Brits or the French and others. Um, just that kind of thinking as they construct their vessels or engage with us on modifications they can make to the existing vessels to absorb the kinds of platforms that the Marine Corps either has operated for years or will operate in the future. And that could be from removing a fiber optic cable that now spans the the, the flight deck of one of the one of the UK carriers to strengthening and reinforcing um, and adding new materials to the flight deck of the Juan Carlos for example. Those discussions are already happening and I would only imagine that that's a natural extension of, of what we're seeing in the Pacific as well. It, it has to be both as a consequence of what these countries are buying themselves, which is, has been pointed out, could be the MV22 or the F35, um, but also because of the, the imperative to, to begin to work with, uh, in, a, in a more close way, um, the, the United States and the, and, the, and the tools that we have.
1: So the, the one other piece that you're talking about is the foundation of an amphibious capability you know, is the amphibious platform. but. And, and by itself, that allows you to do maneuver at sea. But all these innovations—that it's also what you put on the ships, whether it be the Marines and sailors—and as I mentioned in my remarks, the connectors that you have out there. So, you know, one of the the, the genesis of the V twenty-two was to be able to extend the operational reach of the amphibious platform. And so, what you're seeing is now even more effort being taken. So you're increasing all the space that you can maneuver in, which, which always gives, complicates your adversary's decision-making process because they don't know where you're coming from, at what distance, and at what time, and you're a moving, you're a moving platform, which I think gives you an advantage in any, in any type of crisis situation.
2: Just, just one more thing regarding the FV22 and its refueling capability. Um, that's just one more dimension uh, of the Marine Corps' thinking on, on beginning to understand what capability they actually bought. And, and I think it's just a wonderful, wonderful representation of the creativity that the Marine Corps is bringing to, to what is a very different asset from the kinds of, of, of aircraft they've been flying before. So if it serves in that role, that's, that's just another addition to, to its repertoire of capabilities. It doesn't mean it can't do what its traditional mission uh, originally was designed to fulfill, and that is to move the assault
0: force ashore. Sir, in the back with the, the camera.
5: Thank you. Um, Voice of America, Lee Boliu. I have a question for uh, Secretary Seawright and then uh, General Flynn later. Um, In the Philippines, there is a changing of wind over there, um, with the new defense minister saying they're going to focus more on the domestic security issues than on uh, South China Sea. What does that uh, mean to you in terms of uh, U.S. and the Philippines? uh, amphibious uh, capability development. And then for General Flynn, um, the, in the cup, upcoming RIMPAC uh, uh, starting, I think, tomorrow, what what do you see the special value this kind of exercise may have on the uh, developing the uh, amphibious capability with the allies? Thank you.
3: Well, to, first of all, so with the new Duterte administration um, that's going to be sworn in tomorrow, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we're going to have to wait and see. I think we need to give them a little bit of time to get into office and uh, learn their briefs and, and talk to their advisors and see how they want to prioritize. But I think it's important to note that you know, the, um, our relationship with the Philippines and in particular the foundation of EDCA has always been based on the idea that, that it is fundamentally about helping the Philippines modernize their forces and increase their capabilities for domestic and international regional challenges. So for example, it's always been a priority issue area and a real focus of EDCA when we've looked at sites and chosen the first five agreed locations, when we've, taught, when we've agreed on activities and investments that we're going to make at these sites. HADR has always been a focus, HADR for the Philippines because of their vulnerability to natural disasters and the way that U.S. and Philippine forces can work effectively together to respond to those disasters. That's why if you look at our agreed locations that are spread throughout the the Philippine Islands, they're they're dispersed so that we can have easy access no matter where a crisis strikes. So I don't see, and and building capabilities in that area, um, helping to build the Philippines amphibious capabilities for example to respond to natural disasters is transferable to the regional security environment. So I really don't see a bright dividing line here, um, I don't, and, and I would just uh, take a pause before making any judgments about what direction the Duterte administration uh, is going to want to go. I'm pretty confident that they are going to remain fully invested in the alliance and in EDCA and in our planned activities going forward.
1: On the topic of RIMPAC, uh, I'm, I'm not familiar with what the, what the focus of RIMPAC uh, is this year, but in general terms, I will tell you that any exercise that brings people together is a, is a great chance to, to uh, you know, uh, come up and uh, build a relationship with existing friends or build on your relationship with existing friends, find new friends, and also find ways to increase your interoperability and create opportunities to work together in the future.
0: Thank you. I think we have time for one last question, think, sir. Did you have a question?
5: I, I was just going to add on to your point. So, um, my name is Pete Levy, I'm the uh, naval attaché from Australia. So, I've been heavily in, in my previous job. I was uh, heavily involved in our the, the early stages of our amphibious capability development. Um, the two ships we've we've got. Um, so, this is more question than an an, uh, the, sorry, an answer than a question. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. But um, they are des- the Spanish design. They are, if you see the photo, they've got the ski ramp at the front, designed for the F thirty five B. Um, the design is. Australia has no intentions of doing that yet, but for RIMPAC this year we are uh, doing cross-deck operations with the US Marine Corps for MV22 and CH-53 operations for the aviation aspects. Um, so that's a really good example, uh, I think, of the ability to um, use uh, yeah to come together and form a, co- a combined force. Um, and the, the, I was also involved in RIMPAC, last, the last RIMPAC, um, and if I can just give a little anecdote here, one classic example I saw in the Uh, A live fire kill house uh, exercise with U.S. Marines and Indonesian Marines that had met about five days before, doing drills together, you don't get much more confidence in each other uh, than doing live fire drills running past each other. Um, So exercises like RIMPAC are tremendously valuable in bringing people together and building that trust capability um, that's so critical. So apologies. No question, but a comment. (laughs)
0: All right. Well, with that, maybe we'll have one question at the end. sir excuse me john Harbour with national defense magazine um to what extent will the new amphibious combat vehicle enhance u.s capabilities in the pacific and do you anticipate that uh,
4: u.s allies and partners will eventually uh, buy those as well
2: i uh, don't know the answer to the second question the, the the first one i think was alluded to earlier um in the ship ship to shore connector part of the equation where at this point we we have a limitation on our ability to move uh, via service means, Marines embarked on amphibious warships to uh, to objective uh, objective areas. Um, and the ACV is just gonna help that um, to, to some degree. Uh, you know, it's not a swimming vehicle in the way that, that the AAV is. Um, on the other hand, it does provide a, com- a capability that's sort of lacking uh, of the modern variety in the current marine inventory. Um, and again, I wish I could answer your second question. I'm just not sure what the interest is um, throughout countries in the
0: region. All right, well with that, I- Please join me in thanking our panelists for an excellent discussion this morning. Thank you all. And before we conclude, I do just want to extend my thanks to our our research team, including Andrew Metrick, who's opening the door at the back, uh, Adam Sexton, and Lauren Dickey, who helped uh, organize the event this morning. Thanks to them, and wish you all a good morning.